Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. Hello, hello everybody. Hello, how's it going out there? This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy, and I'm in Los Angeles. It's good to be with you. Thanks for listening. I hope you're doing okay wherever you happen to be. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen. You can also subscribe to The Other People YouTube channel. Follow the show on social media, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And support the show if you enjoy the show over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. I have a great episode for you today. My guest is Leila Slimani, best-selling author of a new novel called Watch Us Dance. I feel that the character is is really alive when I begin to to see the contradiction uh, inside the, the character and when something is resisting in, in the character. I don't want to write about heroes or about saints or about caricature in, in general. I'm not interested in that. I want to write about ordinary people, people like you and me, and about the fact also that we all have inside us, we have dark sides and we have also contradictory aspiration. We want at the same time passion and security. We want comfort and we want to adventure. And I think it's interesting to explore that in every human being. All right. That was Leila Slimani. Her new novel is called Watch Us Dance, available in the United States from Viking in a wonderful translation by Sam Taylor. Watch Us Dance is the second in a trilogy of novels that Leila Slimani is writing that reflect her own family's history in Morocco. And in this new novel, which published just yesterday, Leila Slimani is telling the story of an interracial family in post-colonial Morocco in the 1960s. It's a period of time and a period in her family history when her own parents were coming of age. And this is, in many ways, a coming-of-age story. It is about a country, 
country of Morocco, newly independent, liberated from French colonial rule, but also struggling under the weight of a burgeoning dictatorship. And it is about the coming of age of a pair of siblings, a young woman named Aisha and her brother Salim, who are the children of a Moroccan father and a French mother. And in Watch Us Dance, we witness Aisha and Salim as they navigate adolescence and early adulthood in a rapidly changing social and political environment, not only in Morocco, but also in France. This is a book that plays on themes of freedom and possibility, power and privilege, and it plays on the collision between youthful ideals and the hard realities of darker human impulses, racism, and corruption, perhaps most prominently. This is a totally absorbing and transporting novel, and my conversation with Leila Slimani is coming up in just a bit. For those of you who are not aware, I do a weekly email newsletter that you can sign up for. I would love it if you signed up for it. You can do so at otherppl.com or bradlisty.com. It's the same newsletter in either place. It is pretty straightforward. I will let you know about the latest podcast episodes. And I also share a list of links to things that I've been reading and finding interesting. So if you would like to sign up for my weekly email newsletter, please do that. It is free. So my guest today is Leila Slimani. She is the best-selling author of The Perfect Nanny, which was one of the New York Times Book Review's 10 Best Books of 2018. It is also the novel for which she became the first Moroccan woman ever to win France's most prestigious literary prize, the Goncourt. Her other books include Adele and Sex and Lies, Leila Slimani is President Emmanuel Macron's personal representative for the promotion of the French language and culture, and she is also the chair of the jury for the 2023 International Booker Prize. Not too long ago, she was ranked number two on Vanity Fair France's annual list of the 50 most influential French people in the world. I am very pleased to have had the opportunity to meet Leila Slimani and to talk with her about her life and her work. So let's get to the conversation. Once again, my guest is Leila Slimani, and her new novel is called Watch Us Dance. I think I knew I was going to live for Paris to study there since I was maybe eight or, or ten. It's something very usual and not only in my family, but in my social class, in the Moroccan bourgeoisie, people know that when they will be 17 or 18, they will go abroad to study. The majority of them go to France or to Belgium, Switzerland, uh, and some of them to the to the US or to, to Canada. But it's something very, uh, yeah, very usual in my in my social class. Okay, so you were going off at age 17 to Paris to university. And I read somewhere that you didn't like being a child. 
Is this correct? Yes, I hated it. I hated childhood and I don't have very good memories about uh, that period of time. I think that I hated the fact that people would tell me all the time what to do, what not to do, and that I was not taken seriously. You know, when you speak to, to adults when you are a child, they just say, oh, but she's a child, you know, it's not serious, it's not important. And I try not to do that with my with my own children. I really hated that. I wanted to be to be free and to do things by myself. And I wanted people to take me very seriously. I think I was the same way. That's like, that. It's, it's a, it causes stress when you're a kid and you're saying something very sincerely and you're sort of being dismissed out of turn yeah. simply because you're a kid. That's frustrating. Absolutely, absolutely. So you move to Paris at age 17 and there's this feeling of uh, that I, I've read you describe it as feeling both French and Moroccan, and yet there's still a feeling of dislocation when you get there. You're not quite fully French, right? Like it's a, it's an adjustment. Yes, because, you know, in Morocco, I used to speak French with my parents. I was going to the French school. I was studying French authors, uh, French geography. I knew everything about France. It was uh, not like going in a country that I have know nothing about. But at the same time, I didn't feel completely as a French woman and not as a Parisian woman. And it was very difficult to find my place there. And what was difficult also was that I knew a lot of things about them, about French people and French culture, but they knew very few about me. And I was, I think, um, at the same time, surprised and disappointed by the fact that French people had so... So few interest for for us, for people from Maghreb, even if we have very strong relationship. But I felt a sort of uh, inequality between uh, between us, and because of the fact that I knew so much about them and they knew nothing about me. Right. I mean, and I, you just referenced the Maghreb, and I think for my listeners, some people might not know to to what you are referring. So. Yeah, I'm referring to what the, Maghreb is? the three country of uh, North Africa, Algeria, Tunisia, and, and Morocco, that were all, all of them French colony. And it means the West, right? Doesn't the Maghreb mean yes, exactly, West? exactly. And the Mafrech in, in Arabic means the, the, the East. So it's uh, Libya and uh, Egypt. Okay. So you have this experience living in France, going to university. Where did you go? I'm curious, to university in, in Paris. Oh, first I studied philosophy, and then I went to Sciences Po to study political science, and um, and then I became a journalist. So uh, I went to a journalist school also. What was the school for political science? It's called Sciences Po. It's a very famous school in the center of Paris, in the Boulevard Saint-Germain-des-Prés. It's um, it's very famous because it's the place where all the presidents and um, ministers and all that uh, they all study there, and um, it was very interesting, very very interesting, and it gave me also the opportunity to travel. And I went to Hungary for one year, working at the French embassy. It was it was really great. I I loved those years. I, I learned a lot. I bet. Par and listen, Paris is a pretty fun city to be in as a young person, I have to imagine, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, for a young girl like I was, who was you know, eager to live adventures and have new experiences and to be free and to have no one to look 
above me, after me, and um, not to ask for any kind of authorization. It was really great. And I remember when I arrived there, it was in the summer, and it was the World Cup. So it was really great. The first World Cup that uh, French ever won. So the, um, the atmosphere was just wonderful. And uh, people were kissing everywhere on the streets and uh, near the Seine. And I was really, really impressed by that, by the the freedom of, uh, of French people drinking, smoking and kissing outside. And I just wanted to, to do exactly the same. Right, right. So wait, was that 1998? Yes, exactly. I, I think I was there that summer and it remember, was yeah. And I also, yeah. I was also there when they won the Euro Cup. Yeah, two years like, after. Yeah, two years after. Yeah, and I, I've told this story many times to like friends of mine here in the states. Like, one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Like the city, first of all, it just shuts down. <laughs> like yeah. nothing except the except the bars. The bars are open. Everybody's in the bars watching, or they're at home watching. And then as soon as the match was ended and France had won, just the streets, just, it was a street party, people waving flags, honking their horns. It was great. Yeah. yeah. Like I'm, I have French roots. My family, like my grandmother is from Alsace and. Oh, uh, like my grandmother. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I've got French roots and Cajun French roots and I feel an affinity, but even if I did not, I think I would have, I was swept up in it. I was cheering as though I like lived in Paris. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. So, it was a wonderful summer. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about your formation as a writer. And I think that you always kind of wanted to write and you were encouraged to write by your parents. Um, your mother was a great storyteller or is a great storyteller. Yeah, my mother and my grandmother also. My grandmother, she used to tell us a lot of stories when we were kids with my sisters. Um, my grandmother, she lived in a farm um, in Morocco, in the center of, of Morocco, in a farm with no electricity. And so when we would be with her uh, in the farm, we wouldn't watch TV or do things like that. We would just spend time with her walking uh, with her having walks or spending just time listening to her stories, stories about Alsace, about the time when she was young, how she met my grandfather and the war and um, the moment she arrived in Morocco. And she had this, uh, this ability really to, yeah, to fascinate you and to, to build a character. Uh, she was, yeah, she was a great storyteller and I think that um, she could have been a very good writer. And, and it was encouraged when you when you made your attempts as a child to be creative and to write. That was something that was celebrated by your family, right? Yeah. Encouraged. I think my parents were a little bit afraid by the idea that I could become an artist and not have like a financial stability. But at the same time, for them, there was nothing, yeah, better. Nothing they wanted more. Than the life for me, than the life of the of a writer. For them, it was the best life you could ever have, the life of a writer, because they were reading all the time. They had a huge admiration for for writers. So yeah, it was like a, a fantasy for them. And um, maybe when I was a child and a teenager, I just wanted to be a writer to please them, and then it became something, yeah, more personal. Yeah, you know, my memory of of being in France is that when I told people that I was interested in writing, it wasn't, it was accepted and it was, 
there was a re- level of respect <laughs> that I don't experience here in the States as much with non-writerly people. You know, I feel like the profession has maybe greater esteem in French culture than it does in American culture. Yeah. I don't abs- know if that's been your experience. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I think that France is pretty exceptional when it comes to literature, even if you compare to other European countries, maybe... Um, Maybe Russia and um, and England are also countries where literature is very important, but France is very special. The respect uh, towards writer, but um, also the fact that, you know, in France, we, we say that every French uh, citizen has a novel somewhere that he's written at one moment in, in his life. Uh, everyone has this ambition at one point to, to write a novel, to write something. And uh, yeah, it's a part of, uh, of our life. And that's something that I really, really like in, in French, um, in the French culture and French society. So to get back to you as a student where you're studying political science and then you shift to journalism, there was a period in your early career when you, as you mentioned, I believe a minute ago, worked as a journalist and you were writing for a magazine called, uh, I believe, Jeune Afrique, if I'm Mm -hmm. pronouncing that correctly, uh, which means Young Africa. And this gave you an opportunity, I think, to revisit Morocco and to reexamine the place of your childhood and to maybe see it anew. And the reason I want to talk about it is because I feel like this trilogy that you're working on of novels, uh, the second of which, Watch Us Dance, is like the main subject of today's conversation. I feel like it too is obviously very concerned with you looking backwards into not only you know, your childhood, but your family history in Morocco. So let's start with writing for Jeune Afrique. And if you could just talk about what that experience working as a journalist on that particular beat did for you in your understanding of Morocco? Yeah, you know, Jeune Afrique is a very well-known Pan-African um, magazine. It's um, uh, very important for countries like, like Morocco or Algeria and, and Tunisia. And uh, so I was very, yeah, very happy and, um, uh, yeah, I felt privileged to, to work in a in a magazine like this one. And uh, I had the chance to become a reporter and they sent me first in Algeria, then in Tunisia and a lot in Morocco, as you said. And what was interesting for me is that I was able at that time to get out of my little bubble, the bubble I was raised in. Because as a child, you know, I was spending all my time with my sisters at home, studying and and writing and reading all the time. And um, my parents, they didn't have a lot of friends. They wouldn't go go out a lot. So I felt pretty isolated by my class, my social class, and by the education I was given. So when I became a reporter, I felt that it was for me the unique occasion to meet my my country, to really meet the the people and uh, to present myself not as a, a little bourgeois living in the nice neighborhood of Rabat, but as a journalist who wants to know them and who is curious and uh, who can ask them a lot of, of questions. And it was it was really great because not only I went out of the bubble, but I think that uh, it helped me fight against certain fears that I have as a, as a woman and as a, 
as a Moroccan bourgeois, and it was it was very important for me. And as you said, that's something I used also when I was writing the the trilogy. I think Morocco is like um, yeah, like a man I'm deeply in love with, but um, that I don't really know that I want to to know more and. Um, from whom I lo- uh, I hope he's going to love me back, but I'm never sure of, of that. It's a bad boyfriend. Yeah, very bad boyfriend. <laughs> but I read uh, something that you said about this period of uh, your life working as a journalist and kind of rediscovering Morocco. And you say that I, I realized how indifferent the Moroccan bourgeois is to the country. People know all about France and the United States, but don't care what happens two streets away. So there is this outward orientation among the bourgeois uh, social class in Morocco, where they're kind of looking out, you know, up to France and across the the sea to the states, but maybe not paying as careful attention to their own country. Yeah, but you know, unfortunately, I think that it's something quite universal. That's something I experience in many, many countries: the indifference of of the bourgeoisie. Um, they say, oh, it's so sad, so sad that you see poor people and people begging in the streets and that's so sad. And then they forget very, very quickly. You know, I remember when I was in, I think it was in San Francisco a few years ago before COVID and so many people living in the streets in one of the richest uh, city in the world. And you feel exactly the same. You feel the, the indifference the, of, of the bourgeoisie and of, of rich people. So, yeah, my parents were, I don't think they were indifferent, you know, because my mother, she was a doctor and she was really, really involved in, um, in her work and in helping poor people. And she would do for the half the day, people would pay and the, the other half, people would not pay for the, the consult. And she, she helped a lot of people. And um, every night when she would come back from, from work, she would tell us about what she, what she saw about young women dying because they, they can't afford to pay a treatment about uh, children who have, um, nothing and can't pay for a treatment against cancer. So my parents were different, but at the same time, yeah, as I said, we were living in a bubble. Yeah. Well, and I think that, you know, I think about the American bourgeois, maybe one note of difference would be that I don't know how much the bourgeois of America are looking outward. They're just kind of like navel gazing. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Like they're not interested in, they're just kind of interested in themselves or something. But I want to fast forward a bit in the interest of time. Uh, to the uh, novel that you wrote, is it Chanson Douce, mm-hmm. uh, which was published as, and that means lullaby, but it was published as The Perfect Nanny. I think uh, like American readers would know that book as The Perfect Nanny. And you, at age 35, won the Goncourt Prize, which is France's most prestigious literary prize. So we made a leap from your work as a journalist to this moment. Uh, there's obviously a lot of work and, you know, personal experiences in between, but that was really your breakout moment, I suppose, where you became a literary figure, uh, in France and around the world. So I'd love to just talk to you about that experience. That must've been head spinning, you know, to, to have all of that happen. Yes, it was. And for me, it was a surprise. I'm really honest. I was sure I was not going to win the prize. It was just my, my second book. And um, the other writers on, on the list were much more famous than I was. And they had like 
big and important work be behind them. So I was absolutely sure that someone else was going to win. So I was surprised. I was, of course, very happy. I was not naive and I knew also what people were going to do with um, my particular personality, the fact that I was a woman, the fact that I was an immigrant, that I was from an Arab country. I knew also that there was going to be some manipulation from from the media and from people. But I, I was not, yeah, as I said, I was not naive. So I was prepared to that. But um, I think I was not prepared to the fact that uh, you become, in a way, a certain you become a hostage to success. Success is, is wonderful. It gives you a lot of, of opportunities, but um, at the same time, it has no smell and no taste. It's nothing. It's not something that you can touch. It's not something that is going to warm you when uh, uh, when you're cold or to, to help you when you're sad. So, um, yeah, success is something really really weird it's there is also a certain dose of of poison in in success because um, when you have it you don't want to lose it and it, it's always dangerous to have something that you don't want to lose because freedom is just another word for nothing else to lose well there was something i read uh, as i was preparing for this conversation that you said that i thought was notable and wise and it had to do with the aftermath of winning the goncourt for uh, Chanson Douce and uh, having this kind of, what do you call it? Not an overnight success, but that's what people call it. You know, this sudden, you know, suddenly you're a literary figure and all of these opportunities are coming your way. And what you said uh, about this time as you considered what to work on next, and I'm going to paraphrase here, so forgive me if I don't get it exactly right, but you said something to the effect of, I know that with this success, I like had an obligation to myself to work on something that had a, a risk of failure. Basically, you had to take a big swing on your next book. And that, that strikes me as the correct attitude and maybe not one that everybody takes because like you say, you don't want to lose that success. So sometimes I think people can sort of pull back and can get a little bit cautious and you pushed yourself to do the opposite. Correct? Yes, correct. For two reasons. I think the first one is that taking this risk of, of failure is also maybe proving me that I'm not a fraud. Because if I don't fail, it means that this success that I had with um, with the uh, Goncourt is it's not just luck. It's just not just once. It means that with work and with uh, commitment and focusing on, on my work, maybe it can happen again and I'm not a fraud. But the other thing is that uh, I have a very strong relationship with difficulty. I love things to be difficult. And um, yeah, I think it's something not only in my work, but in my life. I like things to be difficult. I like to fight. And um, I like to go as as far as I can go. And I, I like, yeah, when something is difficult to achieve. And for for my books, it's something very important. Each time when I begin a book, I, I always tell myself, you have to do something really difficult, something that frightens you. Uh, I love being frightened by things. Well, speaking of frightening, <laughs> you are in the midst of publishing the second book, in a trilogy that essentially mythologizes your family's history in Morocco and eventually, you know, your own personal history. I 
beyond Morocco. I don't know exactly what the third book entails, but I know that it gets into your life more explicitly. So I would imagine it takes you to France. Yes, France and to the United States also. Okay. Okay. So that's a big project, <laughs> you know, and it implicates your family, which adds a layer of difficulty and potential tension. I know that those are some issues that writers have to navigate, you know, how, how do family members feel seeing themselves on the page and seeing themselves fictionalized and, you know, made to do the work of an author, essentially. So the book in question today is Watch Us Dance, which tells, I think, primarily or it gets into the story of your parents, mm -hmm. more or less, you know, you're fictionalizing, but they enter the scene. The book which preceded this one, uh, In the Country of Others, tells the story of your grandparents primarily. So you're working through the generations. You, your grandparents appear in Watch Us Dance, but are not maybe the main event. And, uh, you know, something that you have said about your own work in, in kind of a self-assessment is that, uh, quote, I think I'm always writing about women, domination, violence. My obsession is freedom. How can we be free and at the same time linked to one another as a wife, as a mother, and try to stay as an individual? I also write a lot about disillusionment. So you've touched on this already, but I, I underlined that quote because I feel like it speaks to what I read in Watch Us Dance. I could see those themes at play here. Do you agree with yourself, first of all? <laughs> yes, I do. And it's not always the case. I'm, I don't uh, agree with me all the time. But yes, uh, this time I do. And, uh, you know, I think that um, as, a, as a child, as a teenager, and even today, I've witnessed a lot of women who were trapped trapped in their life as um, as mothers as wife with this idea that a woman uh, have to stay that she can't leave that a woman is supposed to sacrifice herself and sacrifice her own happiness for her children and for her family and um, at the same time i feel that those links that we have with people we love, with our family, with um, a man or a woman we love, with our children, those links are beautiful and very, very important because they give you a certain security and they give you tenderness and they give you affection. But at the same time, I can't help myself but looking at those links also with a certain distance and and feeling that um, once you have that, there's also something that you lose. It's the possibility to live and it's the possibility to be free. It's the possibility to be just you and doing things for you. So I think I write all the time about this tension between the desire of women to build all those links and to build a house and a household that to take care of it. And at the same time, this desire, secret desire that we have sometimes just to, to go away. And I want to place the book in some historical context as well, because it takes place, I believe, in like the late 60s, mm -hmm. early 70s. And this is after Morocco breaks away from French colonial rule and achieves its independence. Uh, King Hassan is the dictator, essentially, and, and was so until, I believe, the late 80s. So he had a long rule and that, that regime was 
oppressive in many ways, but also, you know, it's complicated because there was some, I think, especially at the beginning, as you describe, Amin, the, uh, the patriarch of the family, he had some reverence for King Hassan and there was some pride in the fact of Morocco having achieved autonomous rule. But that is the backdrop. That time period is the backdrop for the story that you're telling in Watch Us Dance. And I imagine you had to do a good bit of research to be able to inhabit it so fully as you do. Yes, I did. I did a lot of research. And what was difficult was to find the, the little details that I needed for my, my writing. You know, when you write a novel, of course, you have to understand the, the political situation, um, the economical and social situation. But what you need more are details about the day-to-day life, what people were um, eating, drinking, what kind of clothes they were wearing, uh, what was on the, the television or on, on the cinema that year. So I had to make all those research to find the, the details that helped me yeah, put some, some life and some realism in my, in my work. It's very difficult, but at the same time, it's something that I really, really love because sometimes you read a historical book and there is just like one anecdote and one detail. And you know that thanks to this detail, you maybe you will write like 10 pages or you will write a, a whole scene. And that's something that I love very much. Yeah, that's great. Like one little tiny brushstroke and it gives you a story basically to tell a mini story to tell within the novel and you also delved into family history you were talking and interviewing family members i believe your grandparents are no longer living i I don't know i don't know if i have that exactly right but i think you had a chance to talk to them about this stuff and i'm sure that found its way into the novel as well correct Yes, yes, I did. And, um, you know, my grandmother, she shared a lot of things with me and she told me a lot of of stories. So I had uh, uh, extraordinary material when I was beginning to write uh, the the country of of others. So my mother, my grandmother, she was already dead, but I I asked my mother again about those stories and my sisters, they remembered also in their own way the, the tales of my of my grandmother. So it was quite easy to make her relive in in the book okay and so your grandmother was her name ann dobb mm-hmm. uh i think you have said that they you viewed them your grandparents as kind of characters in a novel as a child like b- before you ever became a novelist yourself they were kind of larger than life figures for you because of their life stories uh your grandmother as we've talked about was a good storyteller your grandfather, I heard, had a scar on his belly. And when you asked him about it as a child, he told you that he had a fight with a tiger? <laughs> yeah, he said um, that he had a fight with a tiger in Germany, in a forest um, in Germany. And I went back to school and I told my friends, you know what, my grandfather, he, he had a fight with a tiger in Germany. And they made fun of me, of course, because they said that there, there were no tiger in Germany. But then I understood that for my grandfather, it was a, a way for me to tell him, to for, for him to tell me about the war, because my grandfather had um, 
he was traumatized by the war, obviously, and um, the, the 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 tiger were the the Nazis. But for him, it was too difficult to talk about about that about the time where he was a prisoner in a in a camp in in Germany. But I love the fact that he tried to use a, a metaphor to to tell me about the the violence he witnessed and the violence he was victim of. And um, yeah, I think it was very interesting. Well, the, the a word that occurred to me as I was reading this novel is unflinching. You do a wonderful job of drawing characters who are three-dimensional and deeply complicated. There is nothing simple about a character in a Leila Slimani novel. <laughs> uh, there are no stock characters. And it leaves the reader feeling like, like he is dealing with human beings, first of all, on the page, as opposed to caricatures. And sometimes there can be ambivalence about how to feel. Like, do I like this guy? Do I not like this guy? Maybe I love them. <laughs> I don't know what's going on here. But I love that because it seems truer to life to me. That's how people strike me when you actually get to know them. Everybody is a mixed bag, right? Nobody is a simple black or white, good or bad. We all contain multitudes. And this book deals with uh, infidelity incest, very, uh, what's the word, like difficult issues regarding gender roles. That's a big theme in the book. And I think about uh, uh, Mathilde. There's a line from In the Country of Others where she talks about her love for her children and how she loved them all the more because of all the things that she had given up for them, happiness, passion, freedom. So these kinds of issues about what it takes, the kinds of sacrifices that women in particular and mothers in particular are forced to make in life in general, but maybe more so during this particular era in history and in this place in Morocco where gender roles were uh, maybe more rigid and defined and there wasn't quite as much social freedom for women. And it's interesting because Watch Us Dance gets into the family history that centers on your parents. And as you mentioned earlier, your mother was a doctor in this era and was one of the first women to practice as a doctor in Morocco. So she's bucking these trends and is part of the vanguard of some of this social change. So I just threw a lot at you, but uh, you know, I think first of all, compliments to you on you. rendering all of this because it takes, I think it takes some creative courage to get in there and do this stuff and to be willing to stare down these complexities in people and their bad behaviors too, especially when it might implicate family, right? Yeah, but um, as you said, um, I feel that a character is, is really alive when I begin to, to see the contradiction uh, inside the, the character and when something is resisting in, in the character. Uh, I don't want to write about heroes or about saints or about caricature in, in general. I'm not interested in that. I want to write about ordinary people, people like you and me, and about the fact also that we all have inside us, uh, we have dark sides and we have also contradictory aspiration. We want at the same time passion and security. We want comfort and we want to adventure. And um, I think it's interesting to explore that in every human being. And what I love with literature is that 
I never judge my character, never. Uh, I think that a book is not a trial. It's uh, maybe one of the unique places in the world where you can try to dig very deep in the soul of someone and just try to understand, try to feel some empathy. You know, when I write, um, uh, I feel that I'm like a lawyer and um, trying to defend each of them. And not to say he's not guilty, because in a way, all my characters are guilty for one or or another thing but just to say yeah maybe he is or she is guilty but i want you to hear about her story and uh, i think it's important sometimes to be able just to shut up and to listen to the story of of people we yeah we we want to judge all the time and we judge all the time but uh we're not patient enough and we don't listen to the story well i feel like yeah i mean to continue with this legal metaphor i feel like there's a presentation of evidence here, but there is not a judgment that I'm feeling from you as the author. You're looking at all of the evidence, you're kind of laying it out there and the character's thoughts and actions and everything else and sort of left up to the reader. And it's not an easy judgment in the end, which is what I love, you know, even though there is damning evidence of misdeed, you know, or somebody has done something that is morally questionable. You know, like I say, people are complicated and you end up having affection uh, I think for these characters. And I want to, uh, ask you about Aisha. Is that how you pronounce her name? Okay. So Aisha is the daughter of Amin and is it Amin and Mathilde? Exactly. Okay. So Amin and Mathilde, just so listeners can kind of follow along. Amin is the grandfather. Mathilde is the grandmother. And then Aisha, uh, Aisha is the daughter, uh, is their daughter. And she's kind of the golden child, right? She's their pride and joy. She's the one who, in her industriousness and seriousness and commitment to study, she's very bright. I feel like, she, I think they feel like she's got a good chance to go far and they're investing in her success, sending her off to medical school in Strasbourg. And, you know, she's really on a good track to become uh, like what an OBGYN, I think, is eventually what yeah, she becomes. Uh, so, Aisha and eventually her love interest, Mehdi, are at the heart of this novel. And the Mehdi character is a kind of tragic figure, uh, I think inspired by your father a bit. And I think in particular, what I want to hear you talk about is Mehdi having this creative dream and a very good heart and a artistic soul that winds up not being realized like I believe even in the novel, you might describe it as betraying his own dream. And I think that this is not uncommon for a writer who goes on to publish and to have a career in letters or in the arts in any you know field, but is to have a parent who had an unrealized creative dream and had talent, but never pursued it or didn't have the opportunity to pursue it. So am I on the right track here? I feel like yes, that's the yes, case. No, no, you are my father. I'm, I'm sure that my father actually wanted to become a writer. And then, um, as I write it in the book, he betrayed his, his dreams. But not only, I think, because he didn't dare to become a writer, but also because he was living in a moment where uh, it was very difficult to be an intellectual in a country like Morocco. Um, in the book, I describe the fact that the, the king, Hassan II, had a very 
had relationship, very violent relationship with intellectuals. He hated them. And at one point, he decided to shut and to close a lot of departments in, in universities and to close schools. And he used to say that it's better for a man to have a gun than a pen and that he, he he was always despising intellectual because I think he was afraid that they were going to question him. So I think that the character of Midi, he understand that uh, he's not, it's not the good time and it's not the good place to pursue this dream of becoming an intellectual and a writer. And um, he wants to change the world. He wants to have a career. He wants to be someone and uh, to be in the center of the conversation. And I think that he's being a pragmatic opportunist. He understands that the only way to do that is to work inside the system, not out of the system. That uh, if he decides to become a writer, he's going to be marginalized and uh, probably one at one point to get arrested and all this. He will never have the life he wants with the big house, with the wife, Aisha, who is now a bourgeois. So, yeah, he decided to... Yeah, to betray, to betray his ideals and to betray his dreams and to work inside the system and to try to convince himself that uh, he's not corrupted. And even if it's inside the system, he's going to change the world. But uh, we all know that it's not working like this. Well, and I won't, I'm not going to spoil it. You know, I don't want to get too uh, deep into the weeds in terms of what happens to these characters because it's, it's worth readers reading it for themselves. It's totally absorbing. And what I love about reading outside, I always say this, like, thank you so much for taking me out of the United States. <laughs> you know, you get sort of sick of wherever you live, I think. And it's nice to get away and maybe particularly nice to get away from the States because, uh, I don't know, the States is a, a lot about the States. And so I loved being in Morocco in this book and I loved learning about it. And I loved coming to understand the complexities of it, even in this period of time when, you know, it was more politically um, rigid and dictatorial, more socially conservative. It was also a place where Jimi Hendrix summered in 1969, which I did not know. I didn't know that. I mean, I guess I could have figured it out. I'm not maybe a great Jimi Hendrix historian, but I do know in a broad sense that there was a big influx of draft dodgers and peaceniks and hippies who went to Morocco you know, kind of fled the threat of going to Vietnam and all that kind of stuff. And that factors into this novel, which was a lot of fun. I believe it's the town of uh, Essaouira. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. But Essaouira being a hippie town, these details, I didn't know. So then I'm going on to the internet and searching this stuff, you know, and looking at pictures. And I love that part of it. But the, the larger point is that Morocco, like any place, contains multitudes it is com is complex and defies easy categorization and it could contain all of these things at once which is interesting king hassan and Jimi hendrix <laughs> yeah but i'm happy to hear you say that because you know i think as a as an african woman uh, i was raised like many africans with the idea that our countries are not that interesting that the interesting countries are European countries or the United States, that uh, an American novel is a universal novel, that it will talk to anyone, but that Morocco or Senegal or Ivory Coast are not that interesting and that no one will want to watch a movie or read a book about us. And um, 
it's something very, very sad. As a, as a child, I think I felt very humiliated by that, by this idea that um, you have to be European to have this universal uh, ambition. And I think uh, by writing this book, I, I try also to fight against my own inhibition. You know, when I, when I published um, The Perfect Nanny, I remember that in France, uh, a very famous... Um, uh, critic told me you are too gifted to write about Arabs, and she she said to me that she she thought that it was good and great that uh, my first two book was not about people who were Arabs and that that in a way I was proving that I have talents because I was able to write about white people, and um, I think yeah that um, that's something I'm trying to fight against because I think it's very very important to to tell Americans or Europeans that you can't even understand yourself if you don't look what is outside and if you don't understand the way we look at you and if you don't understand the influence you have on us. And, um, you know, when, when it comes to Europe, I'm pretty sure that uh, me or a lot of my friends from Morocco, we, we believe more than European themselves in certain values, in certain European values. And right. that today they, they probably should come to, to Africa if they want to remember who they are, because we, we know about them. We know a lot about them. Yeah, no, yeah, I, I get that. Like it should be more of a reciprocal situation, a, more of a yeah. recipro reciprocal exchange of interest. And I also think that there's a great damage done to people and to nations when they don't look outward and travel a bit. Nothing brings your home into focus more than leaving it. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's, it's just a hell. I mean, it's not easy for everybody to do. You have to have the resources to be able to travel. So I don't want to oversimplify it, but I feel like as a national value, I think there are certain countries which value travel and encourage their citizens and maybe even help their citizens be able to take vacation and go places which the United mm. States does not do a great job of and to its detriment. And along these lines, if we're talking about cultural exchange, there was something that I read that really interested me about you in writing this book and searching for inspiration. And it has to do with American Western movies, like American Westerns, and also Southern literature in particular, William Faulkner, Carson McCullers, and Flannery O'Connor. Why? Were these influences helpful to you? Uh, first, I think that it was interesting to begin this book about Morocco and France and try to go find references in in another country, in another language. Uh, it would have been maybe too easy. I told you that I, I have something with difficulty. Too easy to go find all my references in the colonial literature and to, to do the same as um, other authors did. But also I felt that the atmosphere of those books, of those authors, when it comes to tension between gender, tension between uh, race, the description of, of nature in the south of, uh, of the United States, you feel that nature is at the same time beautiful, fascinating and dangerous. And uh, that's something I really wanted to to convey in my in my own book this idea that uh, yeah nature is resisting uh, I mean and is resisting uh, all the, the the characters so yeah it was very inspiring for me uh, I think that they are 
probably one of the the authors I, I love the, the the most. So they were like, yeah, looking after me while I was writing this book. I should say too that the translation by Sam Taylor is excellent. Whenever I talk to an author whose work is in translation, I always like to give a shout out to the translator, particularly when it is done so well as it is here. And I know that you worked with Sam on the previous book, maybe multiple yeah. previous books, but I know In the Country of Others was also translated by him, correct? All my books, he, he translated all my books and um, we have a very, yeah, a very beautiful and strong relationship right now, you know, he translated maybe six or seven of my books. So he knows me very well. He knows a lot of things about me, my obsessions and uh, also probably my flaws as a, as a writer. And uh, I love to have um, discussion with him and dialogue with him because it's also interesting that, uh, you know, you discover a lot about a language and about uh, a country by having this kind of dialogue with your translator. You know, uh, I remember we had like a debate about uh, the use of a, of a word that is impossible to use in, in the United States, but that we can use in France or even in, in England. And it was interesting because he explained to me why and uh, I got conscious of, uh, of a whole history here in the, the United States. Um, and uh, no, it was very interesting. So I love to have this, this kind of discussion with my translators in, in general. I imagine you probably haven't heard anything. I, 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 it's kind of a shame because the translator does this really unsung work, right? They do this great work that doesn't often get recognized. And yet if they do their job well, people won't talk about it. <laughs> it's when they, yeah. do their job, when they do their job poorly that people are like, yeah, these words were wrong or this felt flat, like something's not right here because this was a huge bestseller in France or Morocco and uh, you know, it's not really resonating here the same way and all this kind of stuff. So kudos to Sam and you know, it reads beautifully as a native uh, you know, English speaker. I will writer. tell him, I will yeah. tell him and we'll be very happy. So I want to talk to you about, like you mentioned earlier, your background in political science and this education at this university, this school. I'm, I'm going to forget the name of it. Can you say it again on the Boulevard Saint-Germain? Like science, politique, science. Oh, so, science, politique. Okay. So you have now done and maybe are continuing to do some work. I believe it is unpaid work, which needs to be noted, but it's governmental related. Uh, you are working for the Organisation Internationale de la Francophonie. Is that right? Exactly, yeah. Uh, I, and it's a global body that, pr that promotes the French language abroad, essentially, and helps to sort of advance the cause of the French language, which I think, again, maybe distinguishes France in my understanding of it. There's a lot of pride in the French language and a very concerted effort to ensure that it exists. And I find it interesting, um, you know, when new technology, for example, comes about and it might be, say, invented in the United States. I, I study French with Duolingo every day, I should say. I'm very mediocre. <laughs> but there's always a word in French for, say, computer, like computer is ordinateur. Yeah. Uh, cell phone is not a mobile or a cell phone. It is a portable. Like there's, France does not, just adopt usually words from other cultures, though like weekend, super, like there are some, you know, like, <laughs> but usually France makes a point to sort of make its own language, which I appreciate. So, you know, I guess you're working with President Macron, or at least you're one of his, I don't even know how do you characterize it, but can you talk a little bit about this role? Yes, of course. Um, so President Macron, he asked me 
uh, when he was elected the first time, he asked me to become sort of um, an ambassador for, for French language. Uh, the, the idea was also to decolonize uh, the vision that we have of uh, francophonie, because for a lot of people, francophonie is associated to colonization and to this idea that if other people than French people speak French, it's because they were colonized. And so that they, they are, in a way, victim of, of this language. But uh, uh, we really want to fight against this idea. And um, the thing is to say that the French language doesn't belong to French people and is not French anymore, actually. French language is also Moroccan, it's Senegalese, it's Haitian, it's uh, uh, from Switzerland, from Belgium, from many, many countries. And uh, the idea is to tell people you you don't have to justify yourself for, for speaking French. This is your language and you speak it like you want to speak it. You have the right to have an accent and to make mistakes it doesn't have to be perfect. I think for a long time, people had a very arrogant and uh, yeah, quite snobbish vision of, of French, uh, like French language is supposed to be spoken perfectly in a very literary version of, of French. And I, I really fight against, against that. I think that, uh, that what is important is to speak a language and, and to love it. And um, we fight also a lot for multilingualism and uh, especially in Africa. You know, in Africa, in every African country, people speak at least two or three languages. Uh, in a country like Morocco, people speak Arabic, Berber, Spanish, French, uh, now a little bit English. And I think it's a, it's a big chance for the, the next generation. And it's really, really something that we should continue to fight for, especially, and that's why I accepted this, this this job, you know, in the context of um, the rise of Islamism and conservatism, people like this, the Islamists, they say that we are supposed to speak just one language. We, we should only speak Arab because that's the, the language of the Quran and we should only read one book, which is the Quran. And I really fight against that. I, I believe the more language you speak and the more human you are. And uh, I love learning a new language. Now I live in Portugal, I speak Portuguese, I speak Spanish, I speak French, I speak uh, English. And I love that. I love translating from one language to another. I think it makes you yeah, more human. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yet another one of my gentle criticisms of the United States is how monolingual we are. I'm trying, you know, drives me crazy. My kids, God willing, will speak multiple languages. And Ah, oh, that's good. Yes. Uh, I want to talk to you about, you're a very busy human being. You're writing all these books. You're, you're the chair of the jury for the 2023 International Booker Prize. You're working in, as this ambassador for President Macron, and you're churning out novels. When do you, and you're a mother, you know, you've got family life that's obviously keeping you very busy. How do you get all this done? It's hard. I'm a workaholic. Uh, I work all the time. And uh, now I'm in a point in my life where I'm asking me myself, why? Why am I doing that? I think that uh, maybe I had a sort of complex uh, of 
or, or a fear of being a fraud when I had this success. And I felt that I needed to prove something to people, to myself. And so I worked and I worked and I worked. And you know, when you do that, the system wants more and more and more from you. you know, they always ask you for a new interview and a new presentation and a new traveling and this and that. So yeah, now I'm thinking that maybe I should learn to say no and to take some, some holidays because it has been a very, very, very long time since I've been on holidays. I can imagine. Well, I'm glad you said yes to talk to me. I know that you could have easily <laughs> said no. <laughs> Next time around, you can shut me down. Just be like, absolutely not. I'm going to be on holiday. Um, and I know that you have to go because you have yet yeah. another event to go to. So I'm going to let you go. But before I do, uh, I always ask my guests what they are working on or what is coming next. And I believe it is the third book in this trilogy, correct? Yes, absolutely. The third book. And this is the one that, like the 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 Leila character is the center of this one, right? So now you're turning yeah, the lens on, on yourself. Yeah, that looks a little bit like me and at the same time, fictionalized we'll see we'll see we'll see if she if she's me or not i don't know yet all right and she's going to be complex right you're not going to you're not going to make her a hero either, right <laughs> <laughs> do we have a publication date is that book done or are you in the works on it no no, no. okay well Layla, i i know you have to go so i'm going to let you go it has been a delight to meet you enchanté uh thank you Merci. yeah thank you for the time Congratulations on Watch Us Dance and its publication here in North America. And best of luck on the next book. Does the next book have a title yet? No, not yet. Not yet. Okay. Well, we'll wait and see then. Uh, enjoy your time in the States. Safe travels. And my thanks once again. Thank you. Okay, you guys. There we go. That was my conversation with Leila Slimani author of the new novel Watch Us Dance, available now in the United States from Viking, translated by Sam Taylor. Leila Slimani is not to the best of my knowledge on the internet. No website, no social media. She just makes books. Her other book in this trilogy, already available, is called In the Country of Others. It was an international bestseller. You should check that out. Maybe read it, then read Watch Us Dance. You can read Watch Us Dance on its own. It's standalone, but uh, she's doing a trilogy, so keep your eyes peeled for both of those and the third installment, which is coming up, I would suspect, in the next few years. So one more time, that was Leila Slimani. The new novel is called Watch Us Dance. Go get your copy right away. If you enjoyed your experience here on the Other People Podcast and you would like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Get yourself another people t-shirt at otherppl.com. Sign up for my free once-a-week email newsletter at bradlisty.com or otherppl.com. If you have a couple of minutes, please rate this podcast wherever you listen. Give it a rating. If it's possible to write a review, write a review. It helps new listeners find the show. Watch the show on the Other People YouTube channel. Follow the show on social media, TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. If you would like to advertise on this podcast, go to the show's website, otherppl.com. Look for the media kit. If you have feedback for me, the email address for the show is letters at otherppl.com. And if you would like to read my latest novel, it's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It's out there. Got to give it a plug. Trade paperback, ebook, and audiobook editions. I narrate the audiobook. It's called Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. 
So coming up later this week, there will be a flashback on Friday, a flashback episode featuring a cut from the Other People archives. And then on Sunday, I am not prepared yet to say who the guest is going to be, but I will tell you that it could possibly be very exciting. So stay tuned. <laughs>